Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, so mindful of the fact that you give us the chance to study the Bible in a, a deep and abiding way when we do know that it is lacked, lacking in so many places today. And many of us, Father, have spent time in places where the Bible was not front and center and where the Word was not the preeminent tool of ministry that it should be. And when we found the chance to study it in the proper way, Father, it was an oasis in our walk, and we're thankful that you gave it to us. And we ask, Father, that it would never leave. For as your Word says, everything in heaven and earth will pass away, but not your Word. So let us remain in it. Remain in its counsel and its wisdom and its comfort, its encouragement, its correction, its guidance. For we know, Father, that as we listen to what you say and do as you ask, we please you. And as we please you, we see the blessings that come from obedience. And we ask, Father, that you would let this night, like all others, as we study, produce that fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're back in the middle of a three-chapter set that I introduced last week. Last week, you remember, I said that chapters 8, 9, and 10 form a unique structure within the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 8 was the chapter where we saw people assembling for the reading of the Torah. These were the exiles who had come back into the city. They've now reached the point where the city walls have been rebuilt. They're feeling pretty good about all that. And Nehemiah has called them together for the reading of the law under the guidance of Ezra. And as they heard the entirety of God's law read aloud, perhaps for the first time for many of them, they came to understand that they were part of a covenant, one that their forefathers had agreed to on their behalf. And now they recognize the fact that this covenant and the law that it included regulates every aspect of their life. So they went from being a people free to themselves to some extent now to a people under law and to all that it required. That was chapter eight. Then in chapter nine, we saw the people gathering in a joyous celebration, one of prayer and worship, having been moved by the reading of God's word, initially weeping over that mourning for the fact that in prior generations they had not kept what their Lord had told them to do. But as they were mourning, Nehemiah stepped in, remember, and he said, no, this is an occasion of joy in remembrance of God's faithfulness to restore you back into the land and to build up these walls. And so they moved from mourning to feasting, celebrating the Feast of Booths, for that was the seventh month feast that was due at that time. And that was something else they had just recently learned, that they were to celebrate this feast. And we saw last week how the celebration of that feast is a picture. In fact, this entire chapter was a picture of the events at the end of the tribulation as we enter into the Messianic kingdom when a very similar pattern of things will come upon Israel, but in a magnified form leading to the return of Christ and Israel and all believers entrance into the kingdom. That's where we ended. And then at the end of chapter nine, that joyful celebration of the feast gave way to an awareness on the part of all the people that they were still suffering, even as they were in joy at this moment and in their city. Now they were still recognized. They still recognized that they were under the Lord's chastisement for past sins, for the people's sins in the past generations under the covenant. They were in a state of bondage to a Persian overlord, to the rule of Persia, a Gentile authority. And this was a punishment God promised would come upon Israel for breaking the covenant. It was written specifically in the law. That's where we ended last week, that the nation had come to recognize, wait a minute, not too fast. 
we're still seeing the effects of the punishment God brought against Israel for its past sins under this law. And they pray to God asking for relief. But it's not a relief God can grant in the timing they would like. For there is a prescribed order to this punishment. It was to take place over a certain period of time that God proclaimed in Daniel. This particular punishment comes back into play today as we look at the text of chapters 10 and 11. First, I want to take you back to the law for a moment. I need to reorient you, perhaps, or if you've never heard this before, it'll be a new orientation, to some of the features of the law as it applies to their situation, Israel's situation here in Nehemiah. In the law, the Lord provided that the nation would experience a series of outcomes based on their performance under the law. If the nation as a whole, every last man, woman, and child, kept the law perfectly without ever failing one time to keep all of the law their entire lives, then they would have all the blessings that come from the law. If they failed in that regard, if any member of the nation committed even one sin, even one time, then the entire nation would suffer under all of the curses that are stated in the law. Sounds like a fool's bargain, doesn't it? But it has a redemptive quality to it, and we'll look at that later. But for now, it's in Leviticus 26. I'm just going to jump into the middle of something that's in Leviticus 26, in which God has spelled out already at this point in that chapter all of the blessings that attach for obedience. And then in verse 14, he switches gears and begins to talk to the nation about the negative outcomes, the curses, you could say, that Israel will suffer because of disobedience to the law. Verse 14 of Leviticus 26, he says, But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as to not carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I, in turn, will do this to you. It reads like a contract, doesn't it? For in many ways, that's what this is a special kind of contract. He says, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. It goes on for there. In fact, the total number of verses dedicated to the punishments is twice as long as those dedicated to the blessing. It's not to suggest God is not also a God equal in kindness, but is to emphasize the seriousness of their failure to keep this covenant. How is it that the blessings of this law ever come to pass for Israel, given its impossible standard? The answer, of course, is the Messianic kingdom. Only when Israel is glorified. Only those who come into the nation fully removed from sin in their glorified state are able to finally meet the terms of the law and the nation of Israel is blessed in what they receive in the kingdom. In fact, if you go back and look at Leviticus 26 and look at the discussion he gives to the blessings, they are a very clear description of life in the kingdom. So after they have come to full faith, as Paul says at the end of Romans 11, all Israel who is alive in the last day will be saved coming out of the tribulation. That Entrance of the nation into the kingdom to include all saints who've died before will create an Israel that is saved. That Israel that comes into the kingdom will receive the blessings that's been promised under this covenant. They don't come in because of this covenant. They come in because of the Abrahamic covenant, the one of faith. But they receive the blessings of this covenant as a nation because of their ability to finally keep the law perfectly as glorified, saved people do. That's a very short and concentrated discussion that comes out of our study of Revelation. If you care to know more about that topic, it's in the study of Revelation. How the law and the old covenant is ultimately realized for Israel 
in the Abrahamic covenant. Back to where we are in this case. The nation in Nehemiah's day is still experiencing all of the consequences of those curses. You know, some of the things I read out of Leviticus. He said, your enemies will eat the food that you plant, which is what's been happening. Persia gets their tax off of the land. Furthermore, he says, you'll be ruled by those who hate you. Again, that's what's happening here. That's the age of the Gentiles that ensued with Nebuchadnezzar and continues until Christ's second coming. That is the period of time we're still in now for Israel's sake. But in this early point in their history, they were certainly under it as well, and they're experiencing those consequences. Every generation of Israel is going to experience the consequences of the covenant being broken, regardless of their individual performance. Even if it were possible, and certainly it is not, but even if it were, that an individual member of the nation of Israel could live perfectly without ever breaking the law. Nevertheless, that person would still suffer under the penalties of the covenant because the covenant required that all Israel be perfect all the time or else all Israel receives the consequences. This is a national covenant. It was not a covenant made with an individual. It's a covenant made with a nation of individuals. And so the nation is bound to whatever comes from it, good or bad. So this covenant bound not only the generation who entered into it at the time that they stood with Moses at, the, uh, at Mount Sinai, but it also binds every generation that follows. And that's actually in the law as well. In Deuteronomy 29:14, Moses says this. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord, our God, and with those who are not with us here today which is a way of saying to all future Israel as well. So every generation of Israel has been under the requirements of the law. There's only one way to escape the penalties of the law, and that is to come to faith in Christ. And by faith, the law's terms are met for you through Christ. But the nation as a whole still suffers until the nation as a whole moves to that point of faith. Here in Nehemiah's day, the people are still bound. During the reading of the covenant, back to the circumstances of the end of chapter 9, they come to learn that every facet of their daily life will be bound by and under the jurisdiction of law. This is an interesting turning point for the nation, and I think it's hard for us to appreciate how big it was because the nation of Israel, as they came out of the exile, is a nation whose history had been apostasy, where the law wasn't read for generations where the feasts and the practices of the temple had disappeared for generations. And in its place came many pagan practices. Here now, for the first time in millennia, or centuries at the least, the nation as a whole knows the law and wishes to follow the law. And in the knowing of it, they've begun to understand the vastness of it. How so much of their daily life now was caught up in the requirements of law. How their very structure of life was now dictated by law. They now know the burdens of law, but they also have heard of the blessings for obedience. And now they realize there are penalties for disobedience. All of this is news to the nation of Israel. That new awareness introduces the third and final phase of restoration. And that takes us back to where we've been all along. We've said that the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah are a depiction of how God restores his children from a period of disobedience to a period of obedience. And in what we've studied so far, we know that they have come to be aware of their ancestors' failings. They've recommitted to obedience under the covenant, and they're determined not to repeat them, which is a healthy place to be. And so the people, through their leaders, sign a pledge that says they will obey the law from this point forward. Now, this pledge is not required by the law. They're under the law whether they like it or not. They are committed to it whether they take a pledge or not. 
But the purpose in the pledge is for their own sake to make a stand, a public stand, as to their willingness to obey it. In the same way that a couple might, after many years of marriage, decide to renew their vows. Not out of requirement, not because their marriage is invalid without it, but because of a desire in their heart to make a statement concerning their willingness to continue. So the people do this. And in chapter 10, we begin reading with names. Again, like I said, the the book of Nehemiah seems to have this fascination with long list of names. I think it's intended to trip up English-speaking Bible teachers like myself. But we're going to begin reading the names of those who sign this covenant. Now, recognize there are not enough names on this page to account for every last person living in Israel in the time. But that's not necessary. These are representatives. And through the representatives, the people as a whole are committing Then in the latter half of this chapter, we're going to hear the people's own personal summary of what they commit to and what they've heard. That will be the bulk of the teaching out of the chapter. But for now, I'm going to run through the names, verse 38, all the way through chapter 10, verse 39. So we're reading the entire chapter and doing that because the bulk of it is in the second half anyway, and it's really one section. So verse 38. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing and on the sealed document, are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now, on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah and Zedekiah, Zeriah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkijah, Hittush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Hiram, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshalam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shamaiah, these were the priests and the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Binoi, the sons of Henadad, Kadmiel, also their brothers, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Pelaliah, Hanan, Micah, Robab, Hashaviah, Zakur, Sherabiah, Shenabiah, Hodiah, Benai, Beniu, the leaders of the people, Parosh, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Banai, Boni, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigbai, Aldin, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Hanathoth, Nebiah, Magpaish, Meshalum, Hazir, Meshazabel, Zaduk, Jadua, Kalatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoziah, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobak, Rahum, Hashabanah, Maaseiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harib, Bahanah, Now, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or holy day. And we will forgo the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. 
Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites and the people so that they might bring to the house of our God, according to our father's households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord, our God, as is written in the law, that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually and bring to the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborns of our herds and our flocks, as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God to the chamber of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. First, it begins with the names of the heads of 21 priestly families. Then that continues on to the names of 17 Levites who are not priests. Then it moves to 44 heads of other families. These are probably the elders of the nation at the time. So altogether... You have names that represent the whole of Israel in terms of the leadership. This is representative governing, which is something that has existed in Israel since the beginning of this covenant. A few leaders responsible for answering to all of the people in any agreement. This was true in the time of Exodus. Remember, Exodus is a point in which all the nation was bound to the covenant in the first place. But not all Israel, remember, something like two million of them, not all of them, were individually surveyed as to their agreement under the covenant. But a representative leadership agreed to the covenant on behalf of the people. And so the leader bound the people. We do that today. Our leaders bind us as a people to laws. So whether you like the law or not, your representative can bind you to it as that person sees fit. This principle continued into Christ's day. In Christ's day, when he came calling himself the Messiah and declaring that Israel should repent and accept the kingdom that was being offered to them, a few religious leaders in Jesus' day were responsible for condemning all Israel in that generation for rejecting their Messiah. That happens in Luke chapter 13, at the very end of 13, or at the very end of Matthew 12, where Jesus has been teaching openly about who he is as the Messiah, and the people have been responding, and crowds have been building, and then the Pharisees, who were the representatives of Israel, the religious leadership of Israel, came to inspect him, And they declared that what they saw was not the work of God through his spirit, but rather the work of Satan, Beelzebub. And when they declared the work of the spirit to be the work of Satan, they committed the unpardonable sin, Jesus called it. And as a result, that generation, not just those individuals, but the whole of Israel, was disallowed from receiving their Messiah. At the end of chapter 13, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to take you under my wings like a hen takes her chicks, but you would not have it. And he says, and so I leave to you your house desolate and you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a reference to a psalm that is messianic and speaks to the day that Israel receives their Messiah. So he says, you've had your chance. I'm done. I'm gone. You won't see me again until you call out for me, which they do at the end of tribulation. So in that case, once again, a small number of people condemned Israel by their representation for the decision of who is Jesus. And so we see that principle playing out here again. A few within the nation binding the nation by their decision 
And presumably the nation is behind it. They're generally not opposed to this. It's just that we don't have to have each person agree individually as to whether they will or not. By the way, another interesting fact of that moment in Matthew and Luke where Jesus is officially declaring the kingdom offer to be taken off the table. In Matthew 12, you see it very clearly in one other way. Matthew 1 through 12, Jesus speaks openly. There's not a single parable in Matthew 1 through 12. From chapters 13 onward, he never again speaks in any way other than parables. And the disciples notice the change and they ask him in Matthew 13, why are you suddenly teaching in parables? You weren't doing this before. And he says, well, for you it is appointed to know these things, but they will not know these things. And he was speaking to those who had rejected him. So from that point forward, he was only teaching to the disciples. The offer of the kingdom had been withdrawn for Israel. And it will come back again, but it is gone for now. So notice the people recognize something very important in verse 28. They notice, so they recognize that they are subject to curses under the law. You notice that? We put upon ourselves, they say in verse 29, they said that we are taking on ourselves a curse. Remember in Leviticus 26, we read that Israel would be under curses if they failed to keep the covenant. Here, you see the people recognizing that this is a burden that they now have to bear. They're experiencing one of the benefits, by the way, of learning God's word. That is an explanation for their current circumstances. They were going to be under the curse one way or the other. Their life was going to be the way it was intended to be according to God's word, whether they knew God's word or not. But now having understood things they previously did not know, they can make sense of their current circumstances without maligning the character of God in order to do so. How many times have we faced something negative in our life, but for whatever reason we lack the insight, the godly insight to appreciate its purpose in God's economy, and so our only reaction that we have left is to either malign the character of God, to say that God is somehow unjust in this, or to walk around confused and thinking life is unfair. Whereas in this case now we see God saying there is cause and reason for what is going on and that cause is the law. Notice Nehemiah describes them as a people who has separated themselves from the Gentiles and to the law of God. That's also in verse 29. And they want to rededicate themselves in that sense to being people of Yahweh. They know that keeping the law means they have to be separate. So if they're going to achieve that purpose, then they have to obey the law. And they're going to have to experience what comes from that, which is a world that hates them. In verse 31, the people as a whole begin to summarize the law. So it becomes interesting what they choose to include. Look at what they choose to focus on. They concentrate on three general issues. First, not intermarrying with Gentiles any longer. Number two, observing the Sabbath requirements, and that means not only the Sabbath day, but also the Sabbath land requirements, that is, leaving the land fallow in the seventh year and letting slaves go free after seven years. And then thirdly, the needs for worship, caring for the priests, supporting the operation of God's house, the temple. So they concern themselves with all that they could have said, with all that they could have focused on, what they care to focus on in their restatement, in this oath, is on not intermarrying, respecting Sabbaths, and caring for the needs of worship. Why did they focus on these issues? Because these were the chief sins that brought judgment to the prior generations. First, the past generations of Israel made the mistake, time and time again, of intermarrying with the surrounding people. They would offer their daughters to these cultures, they would receive the other sons, and their relationship with the culture quickly introduced idolatry. It led to all of the perversions of culture that came from it, just as God warned that it would. It was the starting point for Israel becoming an idolatrous nation. 
that's what led to the northern kingdom being taken by Assyria. Secondly, the peoples of Israel saw their hearts grow greedy over time and the nation set aside the Sabbath observances as a result. Remember what the Sabbath was all about, not just the individual, but also the land Sabbath. In the case of the individual Sabbath, you took one day off from work. But God promised that by not working for your needs on that day, he would ensure that you had plenty coming the other days of the week to satisfy all that you needed for seven days. But if you worked the extra day, God didn't stop providing. God was faithful even when they were faithless. So a greedy heart could say, I'll work the seventh day and take what God is providing. And then the land Sabbath works the same way. The nation was to cease farming one year out of seven on their land. But they were assured by God that on the sixth year, they get a double harvest, enough to carry them through to the first year again, to carry them through that seventh year. But if you knew that was coming and you knew you could farm the seventh year also, you'd get eight years of the harvest in every seven years. Greed. God was faithful to give them that double portion, as he said he would. But then God cited their failure to keep this particular tenet of the law, the Sabbath requirement. He cited that as the cause for him taking them away into Babylon for 70 years. He said, you're going to stay in Babylon one year, For every year you did not honor the land Sabbath. And in 490 years of land Sabbaths being missed, he owed them 70 years of captivity. So they spent 70 years for the very reason that they didn't observe the land Sabbath. He says that land will get its years of fallow one way or the other. And for 70 years, no one farmed that land. Finally, the nation became so corrupt that it introduced idolatry into the very temple Itself, The final stages of corruption in the nation before they were taken into captivity was to see the kings of Israel, the evil kings of Israel, setting up pagan idols inside the temple and then employing priests of Baal to officiate inside the temple with prostitutes serving inside the temple. This is the temple of Israel in the southern kingdom. Those abominations were just the final stage of descent into pure idolatry in the nation. Occasionally, you know, you'd have a good king rise up for a while and he'd rescue the nation for a generation or so, but then... It was really not a permanent solution. The die was already cast. The nation had walked away from true worship. So now you see in their restatement true evidence that the nation has learned a lesson out of the captivity. By their own statement, they are saying they are determined not to repeat the mistakes of those prior generations. This is true repentance. They are responding to the Lord's kindness. Yes, but the response has to be tied to the offense. The response has to have some connection to the offense. Think about how God's led them to this point. Remember, we've covered this now a couple of occasions, at least, where we say the steps of repentance are spelled out in this example of Ezra and Nehemiah and the story of the restoration of Israel. You start with Zerubbabel, then you move to Ezra, then you move to Nehemiah, each playing their respective role in God's plan to restore the nation, escorting the exiles into the city, teaching them the laws, rebuilding the walls. This is all about building up the people through those mechanisms, building up their hearts. That was the real mission. Look where it's ended. Repentance on their part. And repentance connected to the offense. Repentance is not a feeling. It's not an attitude. It's not even a statement. It's an action. To repent is to turn. So there must be an action consistent with repentance before we can say it's present. The Bible says that sorrow is not the evidence of repentance, for the world feels that too. Repentance is the action that sorrow leads to, which is itself a repudiation of the former disobedience, a moving away from what you were doing before you became repentant. This is the moment you get to see that happening for Israel's sake. This is the moment when you can say definitively they are moving away from what brought them into captivity in the first place as a nation. 
at least on these issues. Truly, the nation has seen the light. What's interesting historically is they never as a nation fall prey again to these three mistakes. They have other problems, chief among them rejecting Christ, but as a nation, they never again fall into the pattern of intermarrying with other nations, of disavowing the Sabbaths, or in polluting the temple. For all their other errors, those are three things they never return to as a nation, not even today. The restoration of Israel is no different than the restoration of any child of God today. We must all see this kind of result to say that restoration has taken hold in the proper way. Once we've been brought back under true worship, good teaching, and godly leadership, the question remains, how will we walk at that point? Will we repeat the sin that brought us under the discipline in the first place, or will we walk in repentance? Consider the three areas that entrapped Israel, and I want you to notice how they relate to your own walk as a Christian, or consider someone you may know who has gone through a period of disobedience or walking away from the Lord, and then perhaps has returned. I want you to look at these three areas that trapped Israel. First, Israel decided they would rather be friends with the world rather than remain separate and set apart and holy for God. They intermarried with Gentile nations. Friendship with the world is always the first step away from obedience. James says in James 4.4, 4, You adulteresses, and he's speaking to the church in, in this case, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if you're truly intent on walking with the Lord, then you have to make up your mind not to seek for whatever the world says is valuable or important. That's what it means to make friends with the world. Think about what it means to make a friend, to find common ground, to seek for some agreement, to see common interests, common goals, common values. That's what friendship is based on. To be friends with the world means to share their values, not to convert them to yours. Israel, in in their example, wanted to make friends with neighboring people in the literal sense. They wanted to ease tensions with their bordering neighbors. And the easiest way to do that is to establish friendship through the intermarrying of one family to another. European nations have long done that in intermarrying their various houses of royalty because it put tensions down when there was a vested interest in the relationship. But in the case of God's people, when we do that with the world, it says we become an enemy of God, according to James, an enemy. And so... If we are going to continue to allow the world to set our priorities, then we have, according to Scripture, rejected God's priorities automatically. True repentance means the opposite. It means forsaking the world and all that it offers. Israel couldn't do it, and they fell. Secondly, we know they became greedy. They began to rely upon themselves. In particular, they sought to provide for themselves at the expense of their relationship with the Lord. Now, the Sabbath, you probably know, has always been a picture of Christ. It's a picture of resting in Christ. Christ did the work of our salvation, so we rest in his work rather than doing the work ourselves. God instituted an earthly form of rest for the nation of Israel as a picture of the spiritual rest we will obtain in Christ through faith. But in the case of the the symbol of rest versus work, It's also a symbol of reliance, either on self or on God. And in this case, the Sabbath being given to Israel was a testimony to God's faithfulness to provide. Should they rely on him? Should they trust in his word? So when Israel traded the rest of a Sabbath for the chance to earn more wealth, they were trading Christ's work for their own. 
as a demonstration of failure to have faith as well. If we are going to walk with the Lord in repentance and in obedience, we have to learn how to rest in him, rest in his promises, in his goodness, in his power to provide. But more than simply the financial side of provision, we also have to be ready to rest in him for everything the world throws in our path. When the world's in a panic about economic collapse or environmental disasters or disease or drought or whatever the newspapers want to trumpet tomorrow, no matter the circumstances, we don't have reason to worry for we rest in Christ. And that's not because we assume no calamity will ever befall us. We know that's not true. But it's because no matter the calamity, it can't do worse than kill us. We're going to die anyway. The saying is, he is no fool who trades what he cannot keep to have what he cannot lose. You're going to die anyway. So concerns about how to preserve yourself against something that's inevitable are fruitless concerns. What more does it say, though, when we trade trust and reliance in God for those concerns, which are fruitless to begin with? It's a fool's bargain. Jesus said in John 12:25, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. It's such an ironic statement. He who loves his life loses it. I, I'd like to put the word anyway at the end. He who loves his life loses it anyway. But he who hates his life, meaning denies himself the pleasures of what the world offers, gains something in eternal terms. Their greed was an example of their failure to rely on God. And then finally, Israel fell because they placed no importance on the house of the Lord and on the proper means and meaning of worship. They profaned the chance to assemble. And to meet with the Lord in the place of spending time in God's presence, they substituted pursuits of the flesh and idolatry and other kinds of indulgences. They enjoyed living for themselves only. They reveled in the lack of accountability that comes from spending no time in the Lord's presence. The more things change, the more they stay the same, because today a Christian's walk with the Lord, especially one who has come through a period of disobedience and perhaps now through a period of restoration, especially that person. Their walk with the Lord will be directly proportional to their personal diligence to assemble and worship with God's people on a regular basis. Attendance at church service is not what I'm talking about necessarily. Participation in the body is what I'm talking about. Through some kind of spiritual service, presumably in the regular corporate gathering, for that's the best opportunity, most likely. But it is not... To strictly say be in church, there are many people who sit in the pew every Sunday and it gains them nothing for it is a spectator sport as far as they are concerned. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to use our gifts and service to the body of Christ somehow, somewhere. In proportion to our willingness to do that, we will walk with the Lord. If, on the other hand, we are like Israel and we sit back on Sundays or Saturdays or Wednesdays or whatever days or our days, choosing to use that time for selfish pursuits, maybe not idolatrous pursuits, but still selfish pursuits, what we are doing is we are trading the accountability and the opportunity to grow for self-indulgence in some form, whether it's sleeping in or some other form of activity. I've seen far too many believers wander away from the faith because, in part, they lacked a commitment, a true commitment to the gathering. I do find it ironic that so many people will never think to miss a softball practice for they might let the team down. But they don't consider who they're letting down in the team when they don't show up at a Sunday service and do their part there. So if we are to show the work of repentance, to show it, not just to say it, then we must remain committed to the house of God. And remember, the house of God in our day does not refer to the building. It refers to the people. And our commitment to the team, to the gathering, is how we invest ourselves 
in service to God. Paul says in Romans 12:1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's how you worship. Worship means service within the context of the body gathered. Neglect responsibilities to worship through service and you move away from the Lord, which is not repentance, it's regression. And it's so easy to do. So those are the three things we see in, in their focus. They're directly proportional to the mistakes of the past in the nation that came before them. And it's directly applicable to what comes often in our world today. The tendency to make friends with the world, to seek greed over sacrifice, and to divest ourselves from service to the body and to what it brings us in terms of accountability. Now, let's finish the lesson. To do that, we move to chapter 11. The scene in this chapter runs all the way into chapter 12, like I said earlier, but we're only going to look at this one chapter tonight. And again, it's a quick read with only a couple of points really to make, a few points to make along the way. Let's just begin with a couple of verses to set up the chapter. Verse 1, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Let's go back in history just a minute. At the time that the wall was complete... The city of Jerusalem was occupied by virtually no one. In fact, the only people who were staying there with any regularity were the people who were working on the wall itself and the leaders of the effort. And the leaders remained there principally to hold the ground, to protect it from those who would attack it. They had to hold the ground. But before that moment, before the walls were complete, no one was living in the city. There's no reason to be there. It was dangerous. There was no commercial purpose in being there. The people would rather have lived out on their land, the land that was apportioned to them and was their family inheritance, because that's where they could farm, that's where they could raise their flocks, that's where their living was going to be made. So the city held no special significance other than the fact that it held the temple, and for that reason alone it had some importance. But apart from that, no one lived there. Now, we're hearing at chapter 11, the walls are repaired, the city is ready to be reoccupied. So the question is, who's going to live here? Nehemiah wants the city to be repopulated and he needs it to flourish. He needs it to survive. It needs to have it needs to be a going concern from this point forward. He wants the best Jewish families to occupy the city. More importantly, he wants pure blood, true Jewish families. He doesn't want to risk any possibility that the city would slowly turn into a Gentile city. But there isn't much room in this city. It's a very small city, just slightly bigger than the ancient city of David. And so there's not a lot of room. At best, people estimate it could handle about 8,000 people at this time. So, in verse 1, we're told Nehemiah solves the problem of how to get just 8,000 or 6,000, however many, into the city. He does it through a lottery system. Now, most interpreters read verses 1 and 2 with the mindset that the lottery is selecting who gets to go into the city, as if, for example, there's a waiting list and we have to be selective. But when I read the text, it suggests a very different outcome to me. It sounds as though this is a lottery to see who must go into the city. Notice it says that the lots were to select who must be brought out of the land and into Jerusalem. And then in the next verse, it says those who are selected are blessed by the rest for volunteering to live in the city. The word choice suggests this is a hardship duty for those who move into a cramped, undeveloped city far from their family and friends. Many of these people were living at the very edges of the border of Judah, which is considerable distance away. So these are the pioneers. These are like the ones who went west in the last century and two centuries ago, I guess, and had to endure all the hardship of being away from the comforts of home. And they're doing it as a sacrifice for the nation to hold to the territory. Now, that's my interpretation. You could choose, I guess, to take the other view. But it seemed from the language to fit better to me. 
In any case, I'm sure they all saw the opportunity as an honor and as a chance to do the right thing. I guess somewhat in the way that a soldier is honored to die for his country, maybe. So then from that point in verses three through twenty four, we have another list of names. And this is a list of the new residents of Jerusalem. In other words, these are the ones who won slash lost the lottery. Verses three through twenty four. I'll do my best again with the names and we'll just roll through it. Now, these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah, each lived on his own property in their cities. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants and the descendants of Solomon's servants. Some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem from the sons of Judah. Athaiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalel, of the sons of Perez, and Maasiah, the son of Baruch, the son of Colhose, the son of Hazaiah, the son of Adiah, the son of Joirib, the son of Zechariah, the son of Shilonite. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 able men. Now these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshulam, the son of Joed, the son of Pariah, the son of Kolaiah, the son of Maasiah, the son of Ithiel, the son of Jeshaiah. And after him, Gabai, Salai 928. Joel, the son of Zachri, was their overseer. And Judah, the son of Hasanuah, was the second in command of the city. From the priests, Jediah, the son of Jairib, Jakin, Sarai, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshalam, the son of Zadok, the son of Maruth, the son of Ahutub, the leader of the house of God, and their kinsmen who performed the work of the temple, 822. And Adadiah, the son of Jehon, the son of Peliah, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pashur, the son of Malkijah, and the kinsmen, heads of fathers' households, 242. And Amasiah, the son of Azarel, the son of Aziah, the son of Meshilimuth, the son of Emir, and their brothers, valiant warriors, 128. And their overseer was Zabdael, the son of Hagadalim. Now from the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hasub, the son of Azrikam, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Buni, and Shebathiah, Josabab, and the leaders of the Levites who were in charge of the outside work of the house of God. And Matniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdai, the son of Asaph, who was the leader in beginning the thanksgiving at prayer. And Bakugaya, the second among his brethren, and Abda, the son of Shammu, the son of Galal, the son of Jeduthun. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. Also the gatekeepers, Akub, Talmud, and their brethren who keep watch over the gates were 172. So the rest of Israel, of the priests and of the Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, each on his own inheritance. But the temple servants were living in Ophel, and Ziha, and Gishpah were in charge of the temple servants. Now the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, from the sons of Asaph, who were the singers for the service of the house of God. For there was a commandment from the king concerning them and a firm regulation for the song leaders day by day. Pethahiah, the son of Meshazabel, of the sons of Zerah, the sons of Judah, was the king's representative in all matters concerning the people. Let's just do a quick summary of this list. The residents in this list, if you were just sort of grouping them, they consist of members of the tribes of Judah, Levi, and Benjamin only, which makes sense since those were the three tribes that occupied the southern kingdom when it was taken away and sent into Babylon earlier, the other tribes having lived in the northern kingdom and were taken by Assyria. Now, as we said, I think, in a prior week, there are some representatives of the other tribes of Israel scattered amongst the people because it is not the case that we literally lost all of them. There's just very few of them remaining, and they're scattered among these three tribes. 
These are being allowed to live in the surrounding lands. So if you were not a member of Judah, Levi, or Benjamin, you were not considered for the lottery. That is not to say that they were less Jew necessarily, but the concern would have been that these might not have been pure-blooded Jews because the history of the northern kingdom included a period of time after the captivity, after their scattering, when some remained in the land and married with Assyrians who came down to occupy that region. Their offspring are the Samaritans, those of Samaria, who are not considered true Jew. At this point, there's some doubts, apparently, about whether these members of the northern tribes were truly pure-blooded or not. And to take no chances, they just said you're not eligible to go into the city. Notice in verse 21, a place is made available inside the city for temple servants. In fact, a significant part of the city is devoted to Levites and to those who serve the temple. That was a key purpose of having people in the city in the first place. It's pretty much like Washington, D.C. Generally, that city is run because of the government. I mean, it's there for the sake of the government. That's why we created it. In like manner, Jerusalem exists at this point in Israel's history primarily to support the needs of a temple in the city. Remember, the reason that the exiles left in the first place was because Cyrus had been told, I want you to send my people down so they can build my house, my temple. So that's the stated reason for the return. The city then exists. Another way to say it is the Lord's temple didn't exist for the city. The city existed for the Lord's temple. And so it will be in the kingdom, by the way. Finally, a representative of the king of Persia, Pethahiah, we're here at the very end, chapter 1124, also is in the city. Apparently, Artaxerxes wanted some man on the ground who could check out all the happenings in the city and report back. So this is the local representative of the Persian government who will live in the city. Altogether, when you look at all the names and you assume something about how many people were in their family and so on, people arrive at somewhere between 5,000 to 8,000 people being moved into the city at this point from outside the land. The next section, and this is where we finish, verses 25 through 36, this section of names describes those who live outside the city, who live in the surrounding area, outside the walls of the city. So verses 25 through 36 Now, as for the villages with their fields, some of the sons of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its towns and Daban and its towns and Jacobzeel and its villages and Yeshua in Moladah in Bethlehem in Hazashual in Beersheba and its towns and in Ziklag and in Mekanah and in its towns and in Enrimon in Zorah in Jarmuth, Zenoah, Adulam and their villages, Lachish and its villages Azedak and its towns, so they encamped from Beersheba as far as the valley of Hinnom. The sons of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward at Michmash and Aijah, at Bethel and its towns, at Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitaim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nabalat, Lod, and Ono, the valley of craftsmen. From the Levites, some divisions in Judah belonged to Benjamin. This list is describing not people names, but place names. So these are the places that were then occupied apart from those who went into the city. So who's in the city and then what cities have been repopulated in the greater part of Judah? If you had a map and you were putting names like this on an ancient map, you'd notice that they stretch from the very northern border all the way to the very southern border throughout Judah. If you start going south, they range from the Hinnon Valley, which is just south of Jerusalem, all the way to Beersheba, which defines the southern border. And in that area, you find, uh, or then going north, 
you find cities scattered from the north of Jerusalem as far as the border with Samaria. Now, that's not to present day Jerusalem. We're not talking about all the way to uh, Lebanon, but we're talking about to what was Judah, the province, which went as far as Samaria, about midway up present day Israel. There are 17 towns described in the tribe of Judah and 15 towns described for the tribe of Benjamin in this list. The Levites don't get towns, as you probably already know under the law. They are divided out and live among the general population uh, and then take turns serving in the city for the purpose of the temple. Uh, Levites don't have a portion in the land. That explains why all the other tribes are required to care for the Levites. That's why there's 13 tribes in Israel and not 12, as many of you may know. It's because you always have 12 in the land and one in the temple. By having them live among the other tribes, the priests were a part of Israel, yet a very special class set apart from the rest because of this unique relationship. People cared for them and they ministered on behalf of the people. And yet they were distributed and lived amongst all the other tribes. So they became a source of good influence in the culture and often, I suspect, fell into the role of what we today think of as a rabbi or a pastor. They were the local religious representative that could administer on a one-on-one basis within the culture to people wherever they were, because where else were they to go except the temple? The Levites were already with them, which is an interesting grace that God provided to the people, that he put those among them who would serve as their ministerial servants. All in all, the city has been restored. The society has been restored in general to a structure that they have not seen literally since the time of Joshua. This is a remarkable transformation when you consider the state Israel was in immediately prior to the captivity. Instead of idolatry, the nation now has pledged obedience to God's law. And instead of mixing with the culture, they are taking extra measure to set themselves apart from the culture. Instead of profaning the house of God, they're going to great lengths to protect it and ensure its provision. Instead of living for themselves, they're making sacrifices one for each other for the sake of the need of the society as a whole. Restoration is a beautiful thing when it's accompanied by a willing and humble heart. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you give us such a beautiful picture of what restoration looks like. Each of us, Father, will walk in an imperfect way with you. For as long as we live in this body of sin, Father, we will deal with its consequences. Not dealing with it alone and not dealing with it absent true power as you give it to us through your spirit. But yet still, Father, slipping and falling from time to time, for we are not perfect as you are. But, Father, we also know that you are good to restore us. I pray, Lord, that with what we may experience, that you will show us through your restoration a new and better way to walk. That we will have a committed heart, repentant of our of our ways and willing to walk anew in the, in the grace that you give every day. And I thank you that we can lean back on a story like this, a, a history of Israel, knowing that if you could take a people who were so far from you at one point and bring them back so strongly at this stage, then, Lord, we know you can do that for us or for anyone we love. We pray you would have that heart in those, in those needs that we bring before you. And we ask you bring us back for one more week to finish our study, Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.